This is How I Got Here, a podcast where we interview professionals about how they navigated the twists and turns of their careers. We hope these conversations can help you figure out where you want to go and how you'll get there. We're your hosts. I'm Lara Mitra. And I'm Eric Eliason. In each episode, we'll first give you a quick intro about who we are speaking with, and then we'll dive into the interview. To stay up to date, follow How I Got Here on LinkedIn and subscribe to our newsletter at howigotherepodcast.com. We hope you enjoy. Ever since we started How I Got Here, Eric and I have been looking to learn from the various tools, analyses, and thought processes that people use as they design successful careers for themselves. But as our guest today exemplifies, sometimes good decisions don't come from a pros and cons list or from crunching data. They come from a strong sense of intuition and trust in oneself. Dr. Howard Murad's career, which spans pharmacology and medicine, military service in Vietnam, and ultimately building a skincare empire at the age of 50, was fueled by a strong sense of conviction in his gut feelings. Listen to how Dr. Murad used this intuition to conquer numerous challenges in his career and life and become the world-renowned skincare expert and innovator that he is known as today. So maybe we can get started. We love to usually start these interviews hearing a little bit about your childhood. And we know your childhood was particularly unique as you were you grew up um, in Iraq. And I was wondering if you could just share a little bit about what that was like and then what happened to bring you to, to the United States. I, I don't remember a lot of things about my childhood. I do remember living in a comfortable house and having at least one servant for our family and uh, things seemed to be going south. And uh, there was a lot of, I don't know what the right word is, a lot of fighting and, and energizing. It's right around the end of World War II, towards the end of it, that I remember. I remember that at one point we had to hide in, in our home. And it was a difficult challenge to try to leave Iraq. At that time, there was a quota of only 100 people that were allowed to leave Iraq to come to the United States. So we were fortunate, my family, to be one of those hundred people way back in 1946. To leave Baghdad by plane, it was you know, not what we have now. They were like not jets and things like that. <laughs> so we went from Baghdad to Cairo. And I'm the youngest of six in my family. So we didn't, wasn't enough people that could fit into the plane so that we went into uh, groups. The first group was my older brothers and uh, some other people. And they crash landed in the Sinai Desert on the oh way. My gosh. Wow. And we did, the only way we could leave was to go by plane. So we did anyway, but we were afraid to go by plane. Mm. And we ended up living in Egypt for a year. Mm. because we wanted to go by a ship. And eventually we couldn't do that. It was World War II was ending and nobody had the ability. And we ended up taking a plane anyway. And the plane had like several stops. Uh, It wasn't direct like we would have now. I remember stopping several times and then came to the United States. And when I arrived, my older sister taught me three words in English. It was, give me your hand. And my uncle and uh, some of my cousins came to greet us. 
And I said, give me your hand. I said, what are, what are you talking about? <laughs> anyway, it's a long story. It's kind of silly, but that's what I remember. How old were you at this time? And what was the transition to the U.S. like for you? What were your some of the first impressions that you can remember? Well, I arrived when I was seven years old. I arrived in 1946. You know, we for a while lived in a, my uncle's house and he was supporting us in the sense of helping us get accustomed to living here growing up. Everybody had to work. Even I, as a child, I would do around, go around to the neighbors, ask them if they needed any help gardening, or I also delivered newspapers. I was a pin boy in bowling alleys when before they were met machines. I was a caddy. Anything I could do to help. Everybody in the family supported the family. Wow. So we worked different things and and uh, we managed and everybody did well. Everybody ended up in my family to be in their own way very successful. And did you have a sense as you were, you know, came to the U.S. and got your, your feet settled here, what you wanted to do, you know, when you grew up? You, did, you, did you have a sense of, of what the job you aspired to, to, towards? When I first went to college, I wanted to be an engineer. It was at the time of Sputnik. I don't know if you remember Sputnik. That was the first thing that went up into space. Fortunately for me, I didn't do so well in the mathematics. And my older brother, who was a pharmacist, said, you know, why don't you become a pharmacist? You like science. You, when you finish, you'll have a good job and you make a nice living. And uh, it's a wonderful profession. And so I said, OK, I'll, I'll go to pharmacy school. Uh, again, in the back of my mind, I thought of maybe being a doctor, but saying, I don't know if I could make it that way and went to pharmacy school. And we know you eventually did end up going into medicine. So what was that transition from pharmacy to medicine? How did that happen? I applied to medical school. I got accepted. I was gra- I graduated from pharmacy school and I had been working because nobody could support me. My whole family supported everybody, but we, you know, I didn't have any support from my family. So I saved enough money to live and pay for tuition for maybe five to six months to come to California to go to medical school. And during that time, I studied for the pharmacy boards um, in San Francisco, although I was living in in Los Angeles, and uh, passed that. And then I applied for jobs as a pharmacist Hmm. and paid for my medical school by working nights and weekends as a pharmacist while I was going to, to school. So I worked, you know, halftime sort of night shifts that nobody else wanted, you know, working 11 to 7. And then in the summers, for one summer that I did have the free time, I worked 11 to 7 in the morning and take a nap, and then 11 to 7 from night till 7 in the morning for five days, and then oh worked the weekends. Because those were the years before I had to go to clinical and I didn't, I couldn't, I I had to go to class, but I had the nights and the weekends free mostly. But uh, after that, I was, I had to really spend so much more time in school in the hospitals. But so I made a little more money then and I could still support myself. 
I mean, that is, I know from my friends who are in medical school, how intense it can be and rigorous it is. And so you saying that as you're, you know, working nights and weekends, I can only imagine how exhausting and and difficult that was. What drove you to really be so committed to, to, to making this work? I, I think part of me had always been a healer. Always wanted to help people feel better and, and become better. It wasn't specifically what we would call medicine today, but it was a healing process that was innate in me. And somehow or other, that that's, that's where that all came from. Uh, I, I said, I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it. And whatever it took, it took and I made it happen. I just, by, I know. Sometimes when you really want something, you find a way to have it happen. And that's what I did. I had, you know, this was my choice. Even during, in high school and pre-high school and college, I was working all the time anyway, helping my family and, you know, saving some money for myself as well. And we know that eventually in med school, there comes a time when you have to choose a specialty. And we know that you ended up choosing dermatology. How did you land on that? I thought I wanted to be a surgeon. Hmm. And as a matter of fact, I had a residency in surgery, uh, but Uncle Sam had a different opinion for what I should do. (laughs) He says, you should go to Vietnam and have some surgery. Hmm. So he sent me to see to Vietnam and I was an Italian surgeon there. So I saw the, the injured people as they came in I started an IV, maybe did a tracheostomy. If I could do something myself, I would do like a broken arm or something like that. Otherwise, I'd ship them to the mass hospital. So at the end of that time, I wasn't so sure I wanted to be a a surgeon. Um, So that's the first year of my rotation. My second year, I was assigned to the dermatology clinic. And I wasn't necessarily thrilled about it, but I... I did that. I had my, my own general practice in the, in the morning and the afternoon I had the derm clinic. And I really liked dermatology at that point. I really understood it. And the way I think of skincare, I say skincare is health care. Mm. You really took care of your skin. You really took care of the rest of your life. And I can explain that. But the idea that I felt that that was a, a healing art to me uh, after all the experiences that I had. So I applied to a residency and got into the Wadsworth VA UCLA uh, residency program in dermatology. You've since built your career on that premise that skin is so vital for overall health. But I'm wondering when and how did you come to that realization that with skin is so important? I think if I look back, way back in the early 2000s, I had a very nice big uh, medical practice and began to look at it differently than maybe some other dermatologists that it was broader than just taking care of your skin cancer and psoriasis and things like that. So having a facialist and an esthetician in my medical practice way back in the early 1980s. So the idea of expanding the, what, what skincare was a little bit Late 1980s, mid 1980s, I opened up in a medical day spa, mm. which was 20 miles away from my medical practice. Yeah, and dependent 
is a separate entity. And the estheticians had to spend 30 hours following me seeing patients before they could work in, in the um, facility. It was called a sense of self, which you can say by the word, a sense of self, why that meant so much to me at the time. So I think, you know, one thing leads to another in life. Yeah. And you can take one path or not take the path or take another path, but you choose paths as you go through life. And you never know where that's going to lead you, but somehow one leads you to another. And before you know it, you're there, wherever that is. Can you share a little bit more, you know, you, 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 we've skipped over it a little bit, but you started your own dermatological practice and it was successful and growing. And then you've decided in the, in the mid 1980s to open up a medical spa. And I'm just curious, is there a story of what inspired you to, to actually go do that and not just be happy and, 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 you know, satisfied with what you were currently doing? I, I think if, if anything else, I would say, People would advise me at that point, and they did advise me. What are you doing? You're stupid. You have a, a great practice. Actually, I've seen over 50,000 different patients in my life. So I had a huge practice. I was very busy. But I felt like there was more that I could do to contribute to society. And I felt like there was more available for me to do. I don't know. I could give you a better answer to that. But, you know, one thing I'd say ignore the naysayers, those that from the outside, but maybe more importantly, those from within. And learning from the toddler within us, you know, how many times did the toddler fall before they started walking? Maybe a thousand, five hundred, I don't know how many, but a lot. And the toddler wasn't afraid to fail. And he had no idea or she had no idea whether they were going to walk or what that was about, but they kept on going. And we have to learn from our inner child. Yeah, that's actually a great segue, the the analogy about toddlers to what I was going to ask, which is, did you have any fear of, of failing? You're, you know, you're a practicing dermatologist, and now this is starting to be the beginning of you being an entrepreneur when you're opening these new medical spas. And I can imagine it being quite a bit of investment of money and also your time and energy. And did you have any of these fears of, you know, what if, what if things go wrong? Well, they did go wrong. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was, there I was, I, uh, I opened the spa, which was independent and it was somewhat successful. And then I decided at age 50 to start a brand called Murad. Uh, I had been working with the alpha hydroxy acids for several years and realize the potential of them. And by the way, the, the interesting thing, when I was first talking about the alpha hydroxy acids, people would say, you're crazy putting acid on people's faces. They're gonna burn your face. It's gonna, you know, I mean, they didn't understand, but I saw the results. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it was very hard. I worked full time in my medical practice and most weekends I was out traveling, trying to build the business of my brand, you're at it. Go to, I went to over 14 trade shows a year and went to different classes and different things to try to build the business. And then I said, well, you know, I was just selling to estheticians at the time. I said, well, we should make this available to everybody. Why only the estheticians? I heard about this thing called an infomercial. 
And I said, well, I'll do an infomercial. I did the first one and I borrowed money you know, to, to, to do the whole show, which I had no business. I, I wasn't a businessman in the first place. I just took a risk. And I actually, that first one totally failed. And I had second on my house. I had, uh, you know, had very little cash or anything left, almost broke, not really broke. And uh, a couple of years later, I had replenished uh, some funds and they recommended, again, another group recommended doing another infomercial. And that one was a huge success. So I, I you know, like, I didn't know where I was going, but I wanted to go there. If that makes sense. After that first infomercial flop, did you consider quitting? Like, did that ever cross your mind? Oh, no, never. I never had that in my mind. I wasn't going to quit. Why do you think that is? I guess, you know, we can, we can always look at our family, our parents, and thank them for how they brought us up. And, and my family, although we were not wealthy or anything, they, they didn't, I didn't fear failure, I guess, somehow, if I could describe that. My father was not uh, financially successful ever. Uh, in Iraq, he had a, a business that was successful, but not you know huge. And we were fortunate to be able to come to the United States. He um, he went bankrupt uh, when he came to the United States. My uncle had supported him and in, <clears throat> had that partner with him. And that partner actually cheated him and lost the money and he ended up being a messenger and in new york a messenger at that time there was no fax machine no email so if you had a message to send to somebody you would literally just physically take it to them that's what his job was and that's what he did even in his late 80s um, late 70s excuse me and one day he was coming home on the subway from new york and he got mugged. He didn't have much. I mean, he wasn't making any money. He had maybe a watch and <clears throat> whatever. So he came home and we lived on the fourth floor of an apartment house and the elevator never worked. So he kind of made his way up the stairs and got home and we saw him. He said, my gosh, what happened to you? He says, it's okay, it's okay, I'm all right. My left leg is still working. So that's, that's from him. And from my mother was kind of a little more of what we've been talking about. She, um, she, she did sewing, you know, she sewed clothes for the family. Mm. And when we, everyone had to work, so she would go to these stores that sold ladies' dresses and say, I'm a seamstress, you need a seamstress. And they would say, yeah, we do. She'd go there and she wasn't a perfectionist. She was the kind of person when she cooked food, was sometimes it was delicious, sometimes it was salty, sometimes it was burned. And she'd say, it's okay, you'll love it. It's a little salty, but it's good for you. <laughs> and so she'd walk into these stores and most of the time the, the hems were perfect, but uh, sometimes one was up and one was down, it was crooked, 
whatever, and she'd get fired. And so she got fired and she walked next door and say, I'm a seamstress, do you need a seamstress? So she, but between those two lessons, I mean, they didn't give me a lesson, but seeing those two, I guess that combination is what I ended up with. So we know you had the first infomercial that didn't go well. And then maybe through your parents' tenacity, you learned to do a second one, which was a huge hit. And now, long story short, Murad is extremely successful, to say the least. It's a prominent name in skincare and wellness and has been for the past 30 years. I'm wondering, when did you start to recognize how successful you had become? And what did that feel like? No, I, I you know, I always knew I was successful, but I, I thought it should be even more successful. I never, I never felt satisfied that it had reached its potential. Mm. So I think uh, maybe that's the answer. Hmm. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I, it's like when I started the company, I had no, no income. You know, it was just starting a company. Right. And this was in 1989, and I had this wonderful alpha-hydroxy acid was helping so many people. And, and I saw that. And I assumed, I said, well, the first year I should be doing $200 million. <laughs> 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 so the first year, I don't know what I did, but it was nowhere close. <laughs> uh, so it was like, I, I never felt like I had reached the potential. Mm. But but, you know, to other people, I, I did. But, uh, you know, considering where I came from, having no business knowledge and no business experience, and obviously made a lot of mistakes along the way. We're flash forwarding a bit, but we know that ultimately you grew the company and then sold it to Unilever. That feels like passing this company, this brand, this thing you've built, and not only that, it shares your name that feels like it's a big part of your identity. How did you come to that decision that it was time to sell and move on? And they came to me and um, I hadn't been thinking of necessarily selling, but it seemed like the right thing to do. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of decisions are made and for some innate reason that sometimes you don't even really know, you know, people say, why did you do that? Yeah, if I could really, I can't really tell you. Somehow, it, it came in my mind that it was the right decision to do, and not looking at the circumstances or the numbers or anything else, it was just sort of it felt like it was the right time. I uh, I have a saying: make your mark on the canvas of life and let it direct you. And you have a canvas of all kinds of decisions that we make. And sometimes we don't make good decisions, but that's, that's your fabric. That's partly the good and the bad decisions and the stupid decisions and the smart decisions. And one of the decisions that we read that you made about 10 years ago was to start your third career as an artist. Could you tell us more about that? Well, I can compliment my wife for that. Um, we were on vacation and uh, there was an art class at this spa that we were staying at. And I said, 
she wanted to go to the art class. I said, okay, go ahead. I said, she said, come with me, we'll go together. I said, I don't, I don't, I'm not an artist. I don't like, I can't even draw. She said, come on, let's go. So we go to this class. And unlike other art classes, this woman who is the teacher didn't have everybody do the same thing. She just gave us canvas and paper and some art supplies. And she said, go do it, see what you do. And at the very end of the session, she said to me, don't take any more art classes because you have a talent that you don't, that, that you're innate and art class could actually, instead of educating you, could make you worse because they'll treat you to do things that you're not accustomed to doing. And um, so I agreed and I bought the supplies, I took it home, I got busy. But then a year later, I had retinal detachment in my eye, I had a retina problem. I had to put my chin on my chest for uh, almost a month. Wow. I had nothing else to do. So my wife said, why don't you at least do some of the art? You had the canvas and so on. So while I was laying on a, can- on a bed and I would go down and, and do the art and I began to look at colors and one thing led to another and that became what I love to do. And I have over 600 pieces. I haven't sold any, but, but I love doing it. And a lot of people love them. And I teach people how I do it. And the way I do it is by happenstance, like everything else almost. So, um, you know, I'll decide on a color to put on. I'm not sure why I put it there or why I picked that color and why I put it where I put it. But I did. And that's, that's how it was. So it's really interesting having this podcast because I'm learning more about myself, <laughs> why I made all my decisions. <laughs> that's uh, that's amazing, and and you know I'm wondering, uh, do you view this as uh, you know we we read on your website that you view it as or it was described as your third career. Do you view it as as a career or is it is it like a hobby? I guess like how do you how do you weigh that? Is it a career? Is it a hobby? Is there a difference? I would love it to be a career. However, obviously, I have over 600. I have nowhere to put most of them. I give them away and things like that. But, you know, it's, I don't know. Maybe one day it will be a career. I'd love that to be. But if it isn't, it isn't. And I, in the meantime, I enjoy doing it. I enjoy teaching people doing it. You know, whenever at Murad, whenever we have new hires, there's a class that I go through and give information about that and at the end of the class we all go do art and uh, everybody I, I asked them I said what color should I put on this canvas and they say blue purple I pick one I throw it on and so it's an unusual way of doing art and by happenstance some of them look good uh, actually in a way in retrospect I look at them and some of them actually do look good uh, to me and here again, I, I like to give life lessons to people during the class. Yeah. So we'll have six or seven or 10 or maybe a little more people doing it. And I'll go up to one of them. I tell them in advance, hey, you know, I'm going to tell you this to you, but if you don't want me to, I'll go to somebody else. I'm going to go to them and I say, this art piece is the ugliest piece I have ever seen. And I tell the person to say to me, I don't care what you think. You're just saying that because you're jealous of me. So the idea is so many people tell you 
you can't do it. So many people tell you you're not good enough and you shouldn't be let them do that to you. Mm. Should be, you should be thrilled with your accomplishments and be, be willing to, to expose your accomplishments to your harshest critic without fear of rejection. My, mo- my mom is an artist. She's going to, to love this conversation. I'm wondering, when you look back on, on your, your, your career, it's continuing, but if you look back throughout, do you think, do you, do you see for yourself that you've had a successful career? And I'm wondering, how do you, how do, how do you personally define what a successful career is? I, 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 again, I don't know how to answer that question. Obviously, financially, it did very well. I'm not wouldn't complain at all. But when I think of all the things that I feel wonderful about, it's it's the accomplishments in other ways mm. of you know being a pioneer in different ways and having people hopefully learn a little bit from me and me learning from them as well. And I don't know how you can ever describe success. What does success mean to, to you or to anybody? Everybody has it. A different opinion and for me it's not one thing it's a whole combination and dr murad as we near the end here i'm wondering if you have any other insights or tidbits that you'd like to impart on our listeners is there something i could say to encourage your listeners you know i have over 600 of what i call sayings couple of them that I like, one of them is magic only happens when you create your own. People have to understand no one's going to help you. You have to help yourself, basically. Why have a bad day when you can have a good day? Turn obstacles into opportunities. Sometimes things are negative and reframe and rewrite the negatives in your life. Learn from yourself. I think that's important. You know, a lot of us, we think we have to learn from others, Mm. but you learn by your mistakes and deal with them. Here's what's interesting in a way. I I have several books. I have recipes of food. And I say in the recipe, I say, please don't follow the recipe. And I say, why are you putting this book, putting a recipe if you don't follow it? I say, you know what, become yourself. Hmm. Just look at the recipe, and I guarantee you there's something in there that you may not like so much. Take it out. Substitute something else for it. Even if you like it, maybe you want to try it differently. If you don't like the recipe at all, that's okay too. You're not hurting my feelings. But the, the idea is learning from, you know, allow yourself, allow the unique you to blossom. Be thrilled with who you are. You can check out more episodes and subscribe to our newsletter at howigotherepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.